Dear listeners, welcome to Faces of Digital Health, a podcast about digital health and how healthcare systems adopt technology. I am your host, Tiasha Zaitz, and you're listening to the third discussion in a short series about doctors who left clinical practice to work as entrepreneurs in digital health. In the previous episodes, Daniel Kraft talked about new ideas about precise dosing of medications chronic patients with comorbidities have to take daily. He also shared his thoughts about COVID-19 management in the US and innovation efforts to aid the pandemic. Michael Doctor, former full-time pediatric gastroenterologist and clinical director of innovation at Boston's Children's Hospital, talked about better test management in hospital settings and healthcare suited app called Dog.Health, which he helped co-found. Today, we're moving from the US to UK. You will hear from Owain Hughes, NHS surgeon who left clinical practice to build an advice and guidance platform for clinicians. In this discussion, you will hear why are referrals from primary to secondary care suboptimal, how can they be improved with one solution that can impact GP's efficacy in referring patients to specialists, it optimizes care specialists give to patients once they see them, it can drive down costs and most importantly, offer patients an incredibly improved experience with the healthcare system. Intrigued? You should be. Enjoy the discussion, and if you haven't yet, do subscribe to the podcast to be notified about new episodes automatically. Coming up next week is the final discussion in this series of talks with doctors turned entrepreneurs. You will be able to meet Willem Serra, a Spanish doctor who founded several startups, among them a WhatsApp-like platform adapted for healthcare regulation required communication standards, Medico. Medico is present in Spain, South America, US and Europe, and here is a glimpse in the conversation and the users on the platform. In Medico, you have a freemium service. Uh, as a user, you can have a free access to medical groups, to groups like uh, communities or groups where you can chat anonymously and join anonymously, anonymously to, with other patients, and there are always these groups that are always moderated by one professional. So if, uh, we have a groups of pregnancy, a group for fertility, a group of depression, a groups of a lot of different groups. We have hundreds of groups. And also you have uh, free access to personal assistant. There are, there are nurses who uh, help you uh, with the first, the very basic question that you can have in medical. What we have seen is that in Latin America, all these groups and communities are much, much more used and they have more, much more traction than, for example, in US or in, in, in Spain. In fact, we needed to separate the Latin American groups to the Spanish groups because it was massive in terms of engagement from Latin American users instead of Spanish users. And also the language and also the different languages that they have, the different cultures and the different also practices that they can do, for example, with a child, with some kind of uh, infections that are very different in, in Latin America than in Spain. We have seen a lot of different. We, it's much more easier to convert to premium in Spain and in US than in, in for example, I don't know, Mexico. Now to Owain Hughes and Synapsis. 
enjoy the discussion and if you haven't yet do visit our website www.facesofdigitalhealth.com to find other interesting episodes as well Wayne, you studied surgery, so just for warm-up, why did you choose to study medicine and why surgery? I was always kind of really interested in, in science growing up, um, and I always thought I, I'd be a scientist when I was, in, when I was very young. Um, but then I, I actually injured my leg playing rugby, and I spent some time uh, in hospital having physiotherapy, so nothing too serious. but. I remember sitting there and seeing all these people in this huge building uh, walking around and I thought, wow, you know, it, it would be great to, to work in a, in a building like this. this. This is what I thought. Um, and as I researched and learned more about, you know, what a career in medicine would be like, um, I learned that, that actually it, it gives the opportunity to um, not only learn about science, um, but actually apply it um, and apply it to help people. So, you know, from, from, from then on, I thought, wow, that, you know, I'm, I'm going to be, I'm going to be a doctor um, to start with. And then, um, and then surgery, it, it turns out that I'm, um, I'm quite a practical person and uh, I was really attracted to the ability to, um, you know, work with my hands, be active, um, and and really apply practical things and and solve problems every day and I, and I thought you know within medicine um, surgery allowed me to do, to do all the things that that, that I that I was passionate about so um, you know science uh, but also be very practical and, and help people uh, every day. What was the discrepancy between your expectations uh, regarding how medical profession and working as a doctor or surgeon is going to be like compared to what you then saw in practice? I think the fundamentals of it uh, has always been the same. Um, so you know, the fundamentals of, of medicine and, and, and surgery is uh, to understand you know, another person's problem and uh, try and apply your... Um, knowledge and your experience and your skills and everything that you've learned to try try and help them um, as as best you can. And you know, first of all, to understand their problem and and to try and come up with a solution. I think one. You know, if I think back to uh, when I was applying to medical school, I remember some of the answers I gave uh, about why why I chose um, medicine. And, and I remember very clearly one of the answers I'd prepared and and, and I'd say was that I I thought medicine would be a way of Working with the latest technology, I really uh, believe that 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 was possible, and I think that that was one of the things that that kind of surprised me um, as I started to work as a doctor. And um, you know, even the longer I, I, I worked, um, I realized actually we're we're not really working with with the latest technology. Even things that were quite uh, innovative. Uh, we're often decades old, really. If you really think think about the technology that you know, that underpinned them, so actually that that was a bit of a surprise, really, how slow things were moving. Um, you know, as I was training and then as I was working, um, I, I you know I think my expectation was was that it would be much more high tech than 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 the reality was at that time. 
A lot of doctors complain that um, the one of the most frustrating things in their daily life is the fact that uh, they have so much work or time loss with uh, electronic health records or just uh, healthcare IT systems um, because they're just uh, outdated or the connection doesn't work uh, or the computers don't work or they have to restart computers which all ends up in a lot of frustration. How much of that did you, did you see and how, how did you react to that? I mean, I personally, I re still remember when I was in high school and I went from a Windows PC to a MacBook because I was so frustrated when, when the computer was not working as I was hoping it would. I remember when I started um, as, as a doctor, one of the jobs that I had to do for the patients who were being operated on, on the Monday was to go on on the Sunday and get the CT scans, uh, and they were on film, so they were, um, you know, physically had to pick them up, and they were, you know, all individual pictures that made up the CT scan. So hundreds and hundreds of tiny individual pictures that were on a on a uh, a photographic film, and we'd put put them on light boxes. Um, so I remember very early on in my career, actually, the change from that to a uh, PAC system. So all of a sudden, the images, the radiological images and the CT scans were digitalized. And you could use the computer for the first time. I, I sound ancient, but you could use a computer for the first time to look through these images and you could really reconstruct the images. So I remember, um, you know, in the first few years, that that transformation and, and it, it, you know, it, it, it had a big, a big part. So I've seen things improve, um, but very, very slowly. And um, that was a, a, you know, a relatively big change early on in my career. Um, but the changes since then actually did, didn't continue at the same pace. And yeah, all the things that you said about you know, the, the infrastructure being poor, the user experience for um, the, 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 the doctors and the nurses and the, the, all the other um, healthcare professionals and patients are not being what you're used to when, as, as you described, when you're at home using your, your MacBook, you know, it's not like that. It's not as, as, as uh, it's not the same level as, as the consumer uh, tools that, that people are used to at, at home. And um, yeah, that, that became an increasing frustration. I think um, that, that, you know, there, there was a, quite a split between people's home lives, what they're doing um, in, their, in their private life and, and, the tools that, that you have at your disposal and when you come to work and, and things not being as good. Last year, so in 2019, you built a synapsis to fix inefficiencies in the referral system and make it easier for GPs to access specialist expertise immediately, which is something that we are going to come to a little bit later. Just before that, I want to outline a little bit more the environment that doctors in the UK, in the NHS, uh, work in. So to which extent did all the frustrations that we talked about with technology, did that have any impact on your decision to try to build something technological or was that not related? This is on the one hand, you have um, hospitals who are you know, super busy with all the patients that come to them that you know, need to be seen by specialists. And you know, there's only so many specialists and it takes so long uh, to train a specialist to you know, be able to 
diagnose and, and treat a patient. So, so they are really busy, and really struggling with all the demand for um, those services. And on the other hand, you have you know, people working in the community and patients who really need access to that, to that service. And what I saw in the NHS and, and uh, in the health service that, that I was working in was that there was a huge gap between what was happening in the community and what was happening in, in hospitals. And I knew from my own experience of working that actually the same doctors who were training in the hospital before they went out and worked in the community, we could train them up very quickly, actually, to be very, very skilled. And all we had to do was give them support when they needed it. When they were working with us in our department and they had a problem, they could call me or they could you know, text me or they, they could communicate with me and I could just talk them through the problem. And I saw how that way of collaborating, you know, using technology, really upskilled somebody. Um, but then when they left our department and for a few months later they would be in a community, I, I saw that actually they lost a lot of that skill because they were no longer supported. So I saw actually a big need uh, in the health system is actually to join it up, to, to allow people to get advice when they need it. And that would mean that actually patients would need to come into the hospital um, they could, um, you know, be managed, you know, at home or in the community, and actually they they they, they wouldn't need to to travel, and that would solve um, a huge problem. Um, it would it would reduce the pressure on the on the hospitals, and allow the the doctors and the patients in the community to get the care that they needed much quicker. But I imagine that you would need to reorganize uh, in quite a significant way. On the one hand, you need to find some dedicated time from the specialist side to give all this advice and consultations to GPs. Then, of course, there's the question of what happens with the payment. How is this covered? Uh, so how are you addressing uh, those issues? Does it have anything to do? Is it any easier? Because the NHS and the UK healthcare system is structured the way it is. So it's uh, text-based. Actually, what, what happened when we um, you know, built synapses and were rolling synapses out is what we realized was that if you st if you start to focus on the patients and focus on solving problems for the patients then actually you start to address all of these concerns so the points you were making and the points that that some of the specialists were making to us right at the beginning was why would we give up our time to give this advice what's in it for us And actually, what, when we started to think about the problem differently with them and start to think, actually, you know, what, what is causing you problems in your day-to-day -day work? And actually, what's causing them problems often is the unpredictability of the work. And often they have to see these patients anyway. But, they have, but they're seeing them you know, in, in the accident and emergency room, for example, where they have to go to. And at a time that they are not expecting those patients. And actually what Synapsis has allowed them to do by connecting them with the people who are sending them these patients in the community, they've allowed them, one, to 
understand the problems even before they arrive, and they're able to organize their work. So by deferring some patients who don't need to be seen right now, they can change unscheduled work, so emergency work, into scheduled work. And, and that's very valuable to them. You know, and they actually have become our biggest advocate. They, they wanted to help, but they, they were just being honest and saying, you know, what, what is actually in it for us to help our colleagues in the community? They've gone from that position, having started to use that technology, to be the biggest advocates. Because for the first time, it's allowed them to get control back of their work because they know how, how valuable their expertise is and they don't want to waste time you know, moving around the hospital or seeing patients uh, in a setting that, that's not right for that patient. And now what they're able to do is, is direct the patients to where they can be most efficient and manage that patient in the quickest time and the best time for, for, for the patient but also for them as a service. And, and you know, they've they really become our biggest champions. I can imagine that with a system like you described, when a specialist can uh, advise the GP what could be potentially problematic with the patient, the whole referral, referral system changes because GPs are making different decisions. One of the big reasons for waiting lists are the way the health service is organized and the inefficiencies that are inherent in that and the fact that it's not joined up between the community and specialist care. I think that is driving a huge amount um, of the waiting times. And, you know, there's a lot of data that, that supports this. So, you know, across all specialities um, and across all, uh, all different types of, of health systems across the world, it's pretty well established that on average, four out of 10 referrals, so four out of 10 first outpatient appointments, um, actually are necessary. It doesn't, it doesn't add any benefit for the patient. Um, I can only speak of the UK, but, but often what happens is that when a patient arrives, you know, having waited for months uh, to see that specialist, it's as if everything starts again. So they, they may say, well, you know, we need to do these blood tests or we need to do this scan. And then the patient will then be sent for a blood test or sent for a scan and then be brought back for the results of those scans. And all of that is taking time. If you can understand what needs to be done next and do those things in the right order, then you can make the whole system much more efficient. And you can then open up those, those appointment slots. So how is uh, uh, your solution organized in terms of how do you get specialists that uh, give advice to GPs aboard? What's in it for them, as we mentioned before? Do you have uh, a limited number of specialties at the moment? And how is the thinking behind the solution expanding among specialties and among hospitals and GPs uh, just regionally? Uh, currently, with, with um, you know, all different kinds of specialities from you know, adult acute medicine, pediatrics, trauma orthopedics, uh, respiratory, dermatology, um, frailty, um, general surgery, so all kinds of specialities, and, and now uh, COVID as well, already using synapses. And 
Um, I think an important point to make is that our technology really facilitates existing relationships within the health system. It's not that we own the specialists and provide the specialists to the system. No. So the way our, our software works is that it helps existing relationships between different parts of the system. So clinicians who need to work together anyway. So you know, clinicians in the community, paramedics, inpatient mental health wards in the community, nurses in the community, you know, whether they realize it or whether they're talking directly today or not, these people are very interdependent and they are really working together. It's just that the tools that they have are not very good. They're very inefficient. So what Synapsis does is make that interaction very, very efficient, very, very quick and very, very rich. So by, you know, using voice, using video, using messaging, uh, it's very rich, that interaction. So they can work really collaboratively uh, ar around uh, around problems. So, uh, you know, a patient's problem, you know, case by case, they work together to decide what's the best thing to do for this patient. The, the specialist may say, you know, I, there's no need for me to see them right now. What they need is this scan. We'll organize that and we'll see them with the result of that. If you could uh, perhaps uh, make an example or describe an example how a collaboration looks like uh, in a regular setting and with the solution, just so we can imagine the whole the whole work process between all the specialists that are involved. So I'll give you you know a, a very straightforward example that that uh, actually happened. Um, so a, a patient with breast cancer. Uh, comes and sees her GP, so general practitioner in the community, short of breath. And because of the history of, of, of cancer, the GP is, is thinking this, you know, this patient may have a clot on the lung, you know, pulmonary embolism, which is a very serious uh, condition and life-threatening condition. Without synapses, the GP would have sent the patient to the hospital as an emergency. And because it's the afternoon, you know, very early, the patient would have had to wait, you know, a few hours at least probably would have seen any &E doctor who would have taken a history, referred to the medical team, uh, taken another history, an examination, would have been given an anticoagulant, kept overnight, probably had a scan the next day and, and would have been treated like that. With synapsis, what happened was within 30 seconds, the GP using synapsis was talking to the specialist in the hospital the specialist said, you know, start her on the anticoagulant right now. This is what I suggest, uh, Rivaroxaban, which is one of the new anticoagulants. And we'll organize the scan for her tomorrow morning. For the patient, it meant that she started treatment straight away. So there's absolutely no delay in her starting her the right treatment. Didn't have to wait in A&E. Uh, she didn't have to be kept in overnight. And came the next day for an appointment where the scan was already booked. The team already knew about her, knew the history, um, and there was, there was a plan in place for that patient. For the GP, it meant that GP was sure they were doing the right thing. They, there was no anxiety. There was no delay in thinking what to do. They could connect straight away with somebody who could talk through the problem with them, share the responsibility with them, and allow them to do something different by managing that risk together they were able to come up with a, with a different plan, which was actually give the medication, send the patient home, and we'll see them the next day. Something that you know probably um, 
many GPs wouldn't feel comfortable to do without that support of the specialist and without the assurance that the conversation was recorded, that there was an outcome, that everything was documented in, in, in the patient's notes. And that's, that's what uh, Synapsis does. And for the specialist, it, it means the hospital didn't have to put up a, a bed overnight for that patient. You know, everything was, was done in a, an efficient, scheduled way where um, all the information was available for the team seeing them, seeing her in the morning. But like, for example, where the payment system is designed uh, based on what is done, it would mean that, for example, a hospital would get less money. The costs are, can all obviously be decreased with such an approach, which is great, especially for a public healthcare system such as the NHS. But I'm just wondering like, how the whole business model reimbursement is, looks like in practice. It used to be that, you're right, that um, it was payment for activity. And obviously, if you incentivize that activity, you're going to push the activity up. So that's why the healthcare costs in, in the US are much, much higher than anywhere else. Um, but things are changing in the US. So the Accountable Care Act, for example, brought about uh, accountable care organizations. Um, and examples are Kaiser Permanente, um, and Intermountain. So these are um, accountable care organizations, which basically they, they care for, for um, an area um, or um, a patient's popu you know, population health. And the same model uh, is becoming prevalent in the UK uh, and, and also in other countries. The approach is that if you take a longer-term view and a population health view and you structure payments like that, that actually if a hospital is able to reduce the need for healthcare, so improve health, so become a, um, a health service rather than an illness service, and this is the new model, This is the, the way the health system in the UK is changing and the health system in the US as well um, by, by having kind of single payers uh, who are responsible for um, population health. And if you start to think, okay, what's the right thing to do? Then you start to reduce costs for, for everyone. And the whole system becomes much more efficient. So what is uh, the business model that you have? Do you get paid by the GP practices or the hospital? We have a, um, a SaaS model. So we provide um, uh, a monthly uh, rate for, for our technology. All, all those parts of the health system does benefit from this approach. So within this new way of working, uh, which is integrated care, we call it in the UK, or accountable care uh, in the US, where actually the, the, the focus is on reducing demand, managing more patients at lower costs, improving health, then in this way of working, um, a lot of the parts of it do benefit from this closer collaboration. The hospital will benefit because actually they are incentivized to keep patients out of hospital, to manage more patients for the same amount of money. They're incentivized for that. So our system definitely allows that to happen. Like the example I gave, avoiding an A&E attendance, avoiding an overnight admission, managing a complex problem like that in a clinic, in a scheduled way, 
is much, much less expensive for them. So in this integrated way of working, it makes them more profitable. You know, within, within the um, NHS, there are uh, clinical commissioning groups. So they pay for this transfer of patients. And obviously, the, the, the less often patients have to be transferred into the hospital or, or um, the, the least expensive part of the hospital they go to, the more money they save. You know, there's lots of different parts of the health system that, that benefit from, from using um, uh, synapses and with allowing this, this tighter, you know, richer, easier collaboration between different parts of, of the health system that a lot of organizations will benefit from that. Um, and, and that's what we're finding. We're finding, you know, people are interested in, in, in using us that are responsible for the budget of the hospital or responsible for the budget of the commission group or run a group of GP practices. It seems that there's a lot of uh, appetite in the NHS and in the UK to adopt new technologies to leverage from all the benefits and optimizations that digital technologies can bring. If I just mention a few things that were done in the last few years, in 2019, Eric Topol prepared a review about the digital NHS system. Before that, uh, Robert Wechter in 2016 uh, did an analysis of the system. You've got NHS Digital and various initiatives for um, electronic prescribing management systems in the hospital uh, for medications. So a lot is going on. You know, there's an NHS uh, app library for consumers. So I want to hear your opinion regarding how things look like in practice, you know, because obviously a lot of things are still done on paper. I'm wondering if pagers are still used because last year Matt Hancock banned them. So I wonder if that ban was actually put in place. What is the reality compared to all these very optimistic analyses and predictions that are happening? Well, so I think this this drive to digital is actually out of necessity more than anything. So one reality is that demand on the health service is going up and up. Patients are getting older, living longer. They are living with more comorbidities. So healthcare, um, the population is not only growing, it's becoming more complicated. Um, and that's putting a huge amount of pressure year on year uh, on the health service. And that's not sustainable doing things as we're doing now. So a lot of things have been put in place um, you know, now for, for, for several years. So one is um, you know, right from the top, uh, we have a health sector secretary who's absolutely focused on digital. And one example is he said, uh, we need to ban the pager. Uh, with good reasons, you know, pages are are troublesome. They're hopeless 1980s technology. They're intrusive. Um, they cause burnout. They cause stress. And uh, so, absolutely, we need to get rid of of pages. We need to get rid of faxes, which is another thing that the health secretary said. But also, the, the, as you say, there are organisations that that have been set up in the NHS recently. So one is NHSX, um, and another. Excuse me. And another is uh, NHS Digital, which has been around uh, uh, even longer. And these are to facilitate the change to, to digital. The reality on the ground is a work in progress. You know? So um, without a doubt, things are improving. 
I would like them to go faster. Um, and, you know, I think as part of COVID, things may go faster. And after COVID, uh, or as we recover from COVID, things will hopefully continue to improve and acceler accelerate in, in, in the same way. There's many questions that open up uh, here. One is, of course, did anything surprise you or really stuck with you with these reports? Or So I was very reassured, actually, uh, particularly the, the, the topple review. I think they got the focus absolutely right. So, um, you know, the focus on, on patients, um, I think that's, that has to be where everything starts. Everything starts and everything ends with with patients and i was really pleased that the top review had, had had that focus in it and i think that that has to be because what's the right thing to do for patients and the other thing i was really pleased about is that uh, the review was very realistic about what it means to the workforce and the people who are living through this change and what it means to 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 uh, frontline staff in the NHS and other healthcare systems. There was also, you know, a, a um, absolute understanding that things will change fundamentally. So, you know, they talk about genomics and AI and, and robotics and, and digital more generally. But I was pleased in a way that, that that wasn't the first thing. The first thing was, how can we do things better for patients? How can we um, prepare the workforce for this future that's coming? One of the things that was mentioned in the Topol review is the fact that the divide in digital literacy is going to have to be addressed. So perhaps older workers are less keen on learning about new technologies, new apps. So from that perspective, uh, what are your experiences also with your solution regarding who is most interested in uh, adopting and using um, these tools? Also during the COVID crisis, at least for the US, some doctors do say that uh, the way things are done in the healthcare system have changed more in the last 20 years because the system was forced to work differently compared to how change happened in the last 20 years. So how much of that effect do you see in the NHS? I think what, what we've really focused on is helping people do the job that they're doing. Um, so you have to be sensitive. If you want your technology to be adopted, It has to help people, and it has to help people not in theory, not um, you know, with a grand vision. It has to help them with what they're doing day to day. Um, so for a technology like ours that is adopted across the health system by all the health workers um, across, across a, 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 you know, a, a huge area, your technology has, has to fit in with the way they work, and that means being flexible. So, for example, um, the way we've built our system means that uh, it's not just on apps, although it is on apps, but it's also you can access it through a browser and it's reactive um, uh, and, and, and responsive to the device that's being used. Um, it's accessible. Um, it works with other technologies. It works with uh, the systems that, that the clinicians are already using. So I think you, you have to... Be sensitive to the way people work. Uh, you have to be sensitive, as you say, to the fact that people like to work differently. And 
you may have a particular view of how you like to work, but but that doesn't matter. If you want your technology adopted, you have to be um, flexible and, um, you know, call it literacy or just the way people like to work. You have to be sensitive to that. And we've really focused on that, on understanding how people are currently working and how our technology can help them not change fundamentally, but, but make their lives easier. If you focus on that, um, helping them in their day-to-day work, make their work easier, then you can, you can affect huge changes. Uh, one thing that I was wondering also is uh, how do you find early adopters of your solution? How do you search for them? You know, because that's how, in theory, digitization happens uh, in healthcare. You need to find someone who's very interested and then he's going to be the promoter among other personnel and staff as well. I would turn it around, really. So I think it's about being interested in them, in whoever it is, uh, and whoever it is you're talking to, to be interested in them and their problems. And if you can show that you are willing to listen and are adaptive enough to solve their problems, then they, they often become your advocates. So... I'll give you an example. So we went into a hospital and we started talking to, we were introduced to, I was introduced to um, a, a clinician and I saw in him somebody who was just wanting to solve problems. He was really focused on improving things for his patients. I was really enthusiastic and really happy to have met this person who was very focused on, on patients. But somebody who was with us from another organization uh, wasn't as enthusiastic as I was because, um, you know, she thought, actually, this, this person is not going to be a good early adopter. But actually, I, I thought, no, no, this person just wants to solve problems. It's, we have to understand what he needs to solve those problems, and we have to be responsive to that. And it's, it's, it's hard work to do that, to be, to listen, to really listen to how you can help people. Um, but if you do it, then you get, you find your early adopters and they become your champions. And that's exactly what's happened. So if you show that you're willing to listen and you do actively listen and you understand how you can help somebody, then they will become your champion and they will become your early adopter. I think you have to be very lucky to have a solution and, you know, project it out there and hope that's, that it lands in an early adopter adopters lap and they will magically you know uh, become a champion of yours that, that may happen but chances are if you find people like that who have the time to you know take an interest in your niche product chances are they're not very busy solving important problems you know you want to find those people who are solving important problems and have real world problems and you want to listen to them and really help them And then you'll have a valuable champion. You know, not only will they like your technology, but they will be a very valuable, very valuable person because you'll be solving a very important problem. Yeah, yeah. I just uh, got more interested in how the whole product discovery process looked like uh, with your case because you are a surgeon 
you were a surgeon. I don't know if you're still practicing uh, surgery, but the fact is that you have a little bit of a different contact with patients than, for example, a diabetologist or endocrinologist or GI doctor has. And uh, I would kind of perhaps expect that a specialist for diabetes or something would think of how big a need solution like yours is you know so when you have a huge volume of patients that are often in the gp practice and you want to give them uh, timely care without the need to go to the specialist for every everything so what did the product discovery look like in your case how did you find the problem and why did you decide to pursue it uh, so yeah the problem is not the issue the issue is how do you find the passion to find all the solutions that are needed to put this in practice so i'll start with how i thought that there was this was a big problem uh, there was a big problem here that was needed to be addressed and if we addressed it actually we'd improve things for for patients for specialists, for payers, for people who run hospitals, for people who commission services, for GPs. So, you know, I thought this is a big problem. And that realization came from my own experience uh, working, you know, as a, as a clinician, uh, as a surgeon. I understood that actually what people, you know, what, what, what GPs and what, what patients often need is just advice about what the next step, what the, what's the right next step for this patient, uh, to give advice and to allow uh, yourself as a specialist to be accessible and to um, provide that support and, and just the benefit of your expertise, expertise. And what I understood, you know, was that actually that expertise now is locked in buildings. It's locked in big buildings that are typically in cities and the only way people, patients get to access that is to drive, park in the car park, walk into the building at a particular time and go to this room and speak to the specialist. And that's the only time they get, a, get to access it. And I thought, what a, what, a, what a waste that is. The system needs to be um, much more open. And that's, if you look at any sector, this is what happens. So things become distributed. And the same thing is inevitably going to happen. And this is what I realized. is inevitably going to happen for specialist healthcare. It's going to become distributed. It's not going to be acceptable uh, for this expertise to be retained in a building in a city. It has to be out there in the community, accessible to people. From my own experience, I saw it you know, in my own reading of how other sectors change over time. And, and it is absolutely inevitable. And it is inevitable that, that this, this fundamental change will happen. Now, how do you help it happen? How do you become part of that change? Um, well, you know, again, you start with your own experience, but you have to be humble. You, know, you have to be absolutely prepared to listen to other people's experiences. Because if you're fixated on your own technology, your own solution, then it's not going to be adopted. So you have to be prepared to listen and understand that actually other people's experiences may be very different and you have to help them. If you're running a, a, a company, you, your job 
um, you know, as an entrepreneur is to bring all those points of view together and have a cohesive technology that can that you can build a, t- a company around. And and that that was my that is my task. That that's what I have to do um, is to build a company that listens to users' needs and is responsive to that, but can respond to that need in a sustainable way and in a way that you can deliver it at scale. Do you think it's uh, easier for you to get doctor's feedback because you're a doctor? You know, it's the same as it is with when you have um, a healthcare technology company and you have somebody in the sales team that's actually an MD and he will have to put I don't know, 20% of effort to convince a doctor about the usefulness of a solution compared to a salesperson that doesn't have a medical background. I think it does help, uh, especially at the beginning. I guess people are less, are more likely to give their time to somebody who's, who's lived through some of the things that, 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 that they're living through and some of the problems that they're facing and understands it. I guess some of the fundamental things I understood and I understood where they were coming from and what their problems were, and I understood, okay, you know, this is what we need to do. And I think without some of that knowledge, it would have taken longer and maybe would have lost some of their trust in the process. But it only helped in so much that it allowed me into the conversation. It gave me a start in the conversation with them. You know, if if I... Was then once I was, you know, I, I was having a conversation with them. If I was fixated on my technology and not listening to them uh, and not being responsive, and we, you know, our technology didn't work, you know, then it didn't matter who I was. It was just a start. It's just an opportunity. It's just a, 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 an opening of the door. Uh, you know, once you're there, you have to listen and you have to be responsive. Did anything surprise you along the way so far in all these discussions that you have that you had because we often start from an assumption and then when we research that assumption we can be surprised by what we find out. Well, so what I would say is that you have to work very very hard. You know, if if you're going to build a technology company where you are your technology is being used to make very important decisions or helping to make very important decisions for patients then you should be under no illusion that that is a huge undertaking um so i guess when I, even though you know as, as as we discussed i spent many years um you know uh, as a, as a surgeon and training and and you know, working in in on the front line I think even even with that background, um, I didn't really understand at the beginning how much work it is, and it's an enormous amount of work. There's no doubt about it. Um, I'm not sure if it was a surprise because um, you know I'm I'm kind of used to to working hard, but it's it's a it's a big big undertaking. So I think I think it's important to be um, uh, aware of that. So it's not easier to be an entrepreneur compared to being a doctor. 
Oh, absolutely not. No. So I would say, you know, so I, I um, you know, obviously worked very hard in, in, uh, in my medical career and uh, uh, my surgical training and, you know, becoming a, a specialist. I, I was I'm passing all my postgraduate exams and, and getting signed off as, as a, uh, an ear, nose and throat surgeon. I worked very hard for that and I was very proud to have finished it. But without a doubt, uh, building synapses has been uh, the most challenging thing I have done uh, in my life. The hardest I've ever worked by far. Um, it's 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 a lot of work. It's a lot of work, uh, and it's fun. And you meet so many different people. That is the one thing I would say. If you're going to be an entrepreneur, you have to be curious about everyone because you are going to meet so many different people. And there's going to be so many different parts played by people and cameo appearances and people you need to get on your side and work with. And it's just the most fascinating thing. And, uh, you know, to be able to, um, you know, work with really smart people uh, in my team and build things that people I respect use uh, to care for their patients, you know, there is no better feeling than that. Um, so yeah, it's, it's it's absolutely hard work. I would say harder than uh, training to be a surgeon, definitely. Um, but it's really satisfying, and I would absolutely recommend it if you've got the heart for it. Do you miss clinical practice? Because I imagine that as a surgeon, it would be very hard for you to go back, given the fact that as a surgeon, you need to have the skill, you need to have that constant. Uh, amount of work so you don't lose the skill yeah no um, i think that that's a, that's a that's a very important point it's a very fair point i love being a surgeon i, I absolutely uh love uh the work the see as a, you know the fundamentals i described seeing patients operating um and i do miss it a lot and you're right you know when, when i go back um i think i'll have to work with my colleagues you know at least for a few months uh just to get back up to speed but the reality now is I am in the middle of building synapses. And, you know, as much as I uh, love surgery and I, I'm looking forward to, to, to doing it again, I am absolutely focused on, on building synapses. And I am you know, absolutely loving what I'm doing now. And it's, it's so gratifying. And seeing people, you know, I respect use our technology to help their patients, that is uh, really, really uh, satisfying and it's fun and it's hard work. And right now, I would not be doing anything else. Is COVID impacting you in any way? Are you seeing any changes in the user activity? Because I would imagine that at yeah. this certain point, doctors would wish at all costs uh, to avoid sending patients to the ER or the hospital where the chance of getting infected with the virus is just higher. Yeah, absolutely. We've had to respond very quickly, actually, to, uh, to COVID and to uh, delivering services specifically to help. You know, hospitals have always been under pressure. They've always had too many people turning up as, as emergencies. But COVID just really heightened that. There was a risk to patient just turning up to a hospital, you know, because if the hospital had COVID cases, the patient turned up even though they, even if they didn't have COVID, there was a risk of them being infected in the hospital. So all of a sudden, 
you know, hospitals weren't a safe place. You know, they, they, it's always better to, to avoid going to the hospital if you can. But in the context of COVID, that became absolutely critical. And it could even, you know, to a certain extent, be, be life-saving to some patients to, to avoid uh, that trip to the hospital. So, and the frontline clinicians and the managers in the health service, they absolutely work so hard during that period. Uh, and they still do. And we really saw that and how they were changing the way they were working. And they really saw synapses as a way of helping them with that big changes they were making. And, and you know, they, they changed the way they were working together. They were helping more people in the community. So they were helping the ambulance service. Uh, they were helping inpatient, inpatient mental health wards in the community. They were helping nurses and general practitioners in the community. So when we set up the COVID services and, and we saw that we were actually keeping a third of patients outside of hospital. And so, you know, we were really helping um, to, to, to reduce the demand on, on the hospitals and ensuring that patients, when they didn't need to, they could say, stay in the community and stay safe in the community. Uh, did it change in any way your traje trajectory and the roadmap of the solution? Because it seems that this is going to last for, for quite a while. Yeah, so we've rolled out new products. So, you know, we've r rolled out uh, remote consultation capabilities within within Synapsis. We have supported new ways of working. We've brought on new new types of users. All that work that we did and all that all those new features that, that we rolled out then then absolutely they they are going to be part of uh, the platform going forward. And I think the health service is going to be different and um, we need to be responsive to that and, and we are. And uh, one of the big changes is that I think there's going to be uh, much more readiness to provide virtual consultations as an option in primary care and hospital care. That's probably something that's, that's here to stay. Perhaps just one more comment that I just thought of. All the things that you just mentioned are already visible in the U.S. Changes happened because Medicare redefined which consultations can be paid for as teleconsultations and the system changed very rapidly. And I think what this crisis showed is that healthcare can act quickly if there's a factor that has an impact uh, on this. Uh, in this case, unfortunately, it's this terrible, uh, deadly virus. But also in the NHS, for example, one thing that happened very quickly was Project Nightingale, which is a completely new hospital for COVID patients that was built within, what, weeks, maybe? So I don't know, what, what's your uh, impression, you know, observing all this fast change in the world where we used to uh, having um, IT systems embedded in the hospitals in two or three years' time because there are so many preparations that need to be um, done, so teams that need to be established to uh, create processes and uh, make sure that the adoption happens. One of the things that happened uh, during COVID very early on is that regulation relaxed a little bit. Um, so there were statements from uh, the General Medical Council, the Information Commissioner's Office in the UK, um, NHSX, which is 
part of um, the NHS, which relaxed some of the regulations. And that was absolutely understandable and, and necessary. Now, that, that regulation kind of ebbs and flows. So um, I think that balance may be um, uh, reset a little bit over the next few months, where some of the fast changes that have happened will, again, we'll need to look at how sustainable those processes are as we move back to uh, business business as usual. And I, I guess the same thing is true of the Nightingale Hospital. That is, that is a very good example. You know, they opened, uh, remarkably opened a fully functioning intensive care unit, a huge intensive care unit in a convention centre. You know, in, in normal times, you can imagine all the regulations that, that would have had to go in and all the checks and everything. And they all of a sudden became very pragmatic. And um, uh, they, they did things, I guess, in that case, in particular, the way that, that the country would have to respond during wartime. And, and you know, that, that was necessary during this, this absolute crisis. I think as we go back to business as usual, I hope that we don't lose everything about that, that we still remain focused on the patients, what needs to be done, and, and what, what's required to, to, to make things safe. But I, I would like to think that we can retain that pragmatic uh, can-do attitude that, that has really prevailed uh, over the last weeks uh, in the UK as, as we're responding to COVID. You've been listening to Faces of Digital Health. If you liked the show, do leave a rating or a review wherever you get your podcast. This is the fuel for the show and helps others interested in digital health find the show as well. To browse through past episodes and find more about the podcast, go to www.facesofdigitalhealth.com. And of course, stay tuned. Stay tuned.